what we really want is to be able to impinge on reality and make things come out different. Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Deborah G. Mayo is Professor Emerita in the Department of Philosophy at Virginia Tech. She is a research associate at the London School of Economics and the author of several books, including most recently, Statistical Inference as Severe Testing, and a pioneer in developing a new way to evaluate scientific claims. Deborah, welcome to The Filter. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. It's an honor to have you here. We're going to be talking about the specific approach to evaluating scientific claims that you've developed, but I'm hoping you could start us out more broadly by explaining what induction is and how people have tried to solve the so-called problem of induction. Well, the problem of induction is how to justify moving from observations and data that we have to claims about the future or to generalize beyond those claims. The way philosophers have typically understood that problem, though, is that it could only be solved in a formal way by some sort of logic that would explain why you can go from, let's say, all A's or B's to the that you've observed to the next A will be a B or something like that. And of course, they find that that is going to be a circular justification and uh, because you wind up saying something like, well, it's always worked in the past. And so they haven't been able to justify it. So that's the general idea. I like to use the word amplitude inference, meaning that our conclusion goes beyond the premises or the data, but uh, it needn't be a probability that you assign to that conclusion, even though there is uncertainty involved. Talk a little bit about the history of the attack on this problem and where your own approach comes from and fits into that history. Well, by and large, philosophers have given up on that problem because of the manner in which they uh, require it to be solved. But people feel that we can still build accounts of inference and show that they're plausible and warranted. And that's what the whole theory of confirmation was about. And alongside this work on theories of confirmation was Popper's work on a logic of falsification. And so instead of trying to build a logic that lets you go from past cases to the probability of future cases, he said, you know, that was impossible. And besides, that's not how we learn. How we actually learn is starting with the conjecture and trying to falsify it. And um, my work does grow out of uh, that basic school. However, um, Popper was never able to really cash out his idea. He did talk about severe tests, that we want tests that with high probability would have found flaws if they're there. But he was so keen to move away from talking about induction or reliability that he was never able to have an account that 
even allowed that there were reliable methods for falsification statistically. Um, so my view does connect with the Popper view, and you could even see it as using modern statistics to cash out the Popperian goal. My understanding of Popper and my feeling about sort of the limitations of what he was doing was that he proposed a framework under which you might be able to say that something is not true, but there's not much testing of what is true under his way of looking at the world. You can find out what isn't, but you can't necessarily ever learn about what is. Is that a reasonable interpretation of his work? He was definitely um, reluctant to say that you could ever justify claim, but that word uh, was used only to mean that you would assign a probability to it. He did allow that you could corroborate claims, and the way you corroborate them is by putting them to the test, a test that with high probability they would have failed if false, and if they survived that test, you can say that it's corroborated. So what is, exactly does that mean? Uh, he was never entirely clear. I think that he really did have in mind that it was warranted in some sense, so that's new, kind of a neutral term. And he also talked about preferring claims that had passed severe tests, preferring highly corroborated claims and relying on them for future prediction. Within the field of statistics, there are generally two main ways that people approach it, one being uh, something called Bayesian, one being something called frequentist. You have come along with your work and proposed a way to evaluate claims that's on the basis of how severely they've been tested. Right. I mean, I start with a very minimal requirement that uh, you don't have evidence for a claim if nothing has been done that could have found that claim flawed or false in some manner. And if starting with something that all parties, I think, uh, will agree to, we can build an account and appraise tools from rival, uh, rival accounts. Okay? Uh, the idea, again, is that um, a claim has been severely tested if it's subjected to and passes a test that would probably have found it flawed. And that probability is actually the severity of the tests. And that tells us what Parker would call um, the degree of corroboration that that test has passed. Um, in the, um, the Bayesian account, I don't know if you want me to describe um, the, the differences, but it really has to do with the use of probability. And in their view, just like the Carnapian confirmation view in philosophy, the role of probability is to assign degrees of belief or support, most likely a comparative degrees of belief or support to claims based on evidence. Here, we're using probability in my account to describe methods, their capability to have found claims false or flawed. Popper would call that a methodological use of probability. 
One of the things I like about your approach is that it fits in with my own thinking about what makes for a good theory. This is something that I've talked about on the podcast and also in the past on uh, statisticsblog.com, which I used to pay attention to and update, but not so much recently. At any rate, the idea here is that you can evaluate theories from an epistemic point of view. And if you're doing that, then the good theories are actually the ones that you can very quickly dispense with or falsify. So the theory that the earth is flat is in this sense a very nice theory because we get very quick falsification of it all the time from anyone who's flying in an airplane or in the space station above the earth. So it's very easy to look at that theory and go, it's completely been falsified. And then you get to other theories that exist in environments where the data is noisier or that have a certain amount of evidence to favor them, but you can't say fully that that's something that you can confirm, or it takes a very long time to confirm that theory. I think of the next level up in terms of niceness of theories being something like that smoking causes cancer. It's now fairly well established and we're all comfortable saying that, but that took a lot of years and a lot of data and a lot of modeling to convince people of. And so your work comes along, and I think that in some sense, it gives you a way to tell not just, you know, how severely a theory has been tested, but also in some way to say, is this a nice theory? I think that we can relate this to the question of, is this a nice theory? But I actually think that uh, the Popperian idea of putting all of this on the theory that it should be able to be falsified readily is a mistake. It wound up with people finding, well, you want this trivial claim, that's highly scientific just because it's crazy and it's easy to falsify. I think that he often uh, used the word theory when it would have been better if he used the word inquiry. That is, we really want inquiries that are probative regardless of the form of the theory. And of course, we want theories that are highly contentful, that allow us to explain and to predict, and that do allow us to test them, that allow us to triangulate their measurements and uh, be able to find weak spots and uh, attain what I call experimental knowledge in um, my book, Era and the Growth of Experimental Knowledge, knowledge of what would be expected in subsequent experiments. But I think the main place to put this probative ability is really in the tools for inquiry rather than the theory, but I'm not sure if that's clear. That's interesting. It brings to mind, too, that one of the things when we're looking at theories here is, and you've talked about this, is that it's nice, I, these are my words now, um, it's nice if your theory makes predictions that wouldn't necessarily have been expected under the current paradigm, say. So you talked about Einstein's light bending experiment and how he made a prediction that was of something that would only be different either if he was right or something else was going on, but that would definitely have failed if he had been wrong and the dominant view of gravity had been right. Right. 
you know, I thought a lot about that requirement. Uh, what, what exactly is it that you're requiring when you're requiring this falsification? You definitely need to be able to say in advance that not all outcomes are going to be allowed to count in favor of a claim. And so you need to basically have a threshold where you're prepared to say that doesn't count in favor of a claim. It doesn't necessarily count against it, but um, you're not allowed to say that it counts in favor of it. And the interesting thing is that recently um, some philosophers of statistics and statisticians have been saying, well, we really shouldn't have thresholds because people uh, abuse them and they use them in unthinking ways. But if they do that, then they really give up on testing and falsification. That's one of the recent um, issues that have come up in this field. When I was working on a statistics blog, the most controversial post I had, perhaps not unsurprisingly, was about global warming. And I did an analysis of the data, and I found that it could be explained as essentially a random walk. It was a little more complicated than that, but that the temperature data that we had was also compatible with the idea that this was just some random noise that we were seeing. And one of my frustrations with the arguments around this was not that people were disagreeing with me. I expected that, but that whenever I would try to pin people down on what would constitute rejection of that hypothesis, that in particular trying to pin down the specifics of the words themselves, you know, what what are we testing here? Are we testing for catastrophic man-made global warming as opposed to climate change, which of course even though the claim is that people are denying that, no one is really denying that. But then can we formalize what you're saying when you're arguing for this particular model? And then can we set up a way in which that can be falsified? And it was very frustrating in that it was very hard to get people to commit to saying, well, if this prediction fails, then I'll discard my model. Well, this is the kind of thing that happens in difficult cases that are intertwined with politics and intertwined, of course, with the survival of humankind and the planet. When things get so politicized, uh, there is this reluctance uh, to commit to certain scientific principles that you ordinarily would be. I hope that they um, are prepared to say when these models really fall apart and need to be replaced by new ones, but it's not something that I work in. One of the things, this was a a discussion I, I had with Andrew Gelman, and he didn't bite on this at all, but I'm wondering if you perhaps have a little more sympathy to the idea that now that we are in an era when data is abundant and you can pick from a wide variety of sources, that it becomes much easier to justify making your posterior your prior. So for the listeners, the prior is the belief that you have before you do the experiment or collect the data, and the posterior is your belief afterwards. And I feel like as we get more access to more pieces of data, and even as we have more sophisticated models and more models to choose from to do our analysis, it becomes easier and easier to end up with the same beliefs we started with, because we're always able to find an escape route. 
True. I mean, I think that uh, the biggest problem now does grow out of the big data and the ease with which we can find impressive looking results, even though they don't replicate and even though they are really the results of models that would find some result or other that would find some algorithm or other, whatever it is, even if it's false. I didn't know whether you were saying that Gelman was reluctant to agree to that or... Yeah, he in fact he, he in fact stated bluntly, no, I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think scientists are learning and that people are updating their priors all the time and that he wasn't willing to accept that big data was changing that equation. But he admits that the prior can be changed. This is the big problem with the Bayesian account. Of course, the... the the hugest problem is what do these priors mean and what are they measuring? Are they degrees of belief uh, in some aspect of the phenomena or are they degrees of belief in frequencies of outcomes? Nobody is very clear. And these days people don't even, many statisticians don't want to talk about their beliefs. They want to have these objective or non-subjective priors that are these default or reference priors that let the data be dominant in some sense. They had hoped for totally uninformative priors, but that didn't work out. And there's no agreement how to get these data dominant priors either. So the first issue is what did they mean? But in all of these accounts, you will find whether subjective or non-subjective, typically you have the data first before you come up with the prior. So it's not literally the prior that is supposed to be your belief before you saw the data. And as you point out, um, this is really ripe for bias because now that you've seen the data, you say, well, this is what I ought to have believed. And so you change the prior. And in the end, you come out with what you expected. That doesn't mean that everybody does this and that nobody puts things to severe tests. I know that Gelman likes to see his account as a Bayesian, but also falsificationist. And that's because he will use frequentist error statistical tests to test his assumption. But I think, you know, there are problems there, but at least that's the general idea. Just to try to make things clear to the listeners, so when you're talking about uh, sort of objective and subjective, the idea here is that on one model, you're representing the degree to which you believe something. The subjective view of probability is an epistemic one, right? No, I don't think that uh being epistemic means it's all about beliefs. That's actually probably one of the most radical parts of my account. Uh, typically, it had been thought, well, if you're talking about knowledge, which is uh, what epistemology is studying, then you must be talking about people's beliefs. And then the next move is, well, if it's beliefs, maybe it's degrees of belief, and maybe probability is measuring degrees of belief. I think this is a, a big mistake. Actually, Popper's the one who first pointed this out, he's saying that we are interested in the degree of rationality of beliefs or the degree of warrantedness of certain claims. That's very different from talking about degree of belief in a subjective way. So I think that basically Bayesians have never clarified what um, they meant, what they mean, and they're all 
coming up with different theories. And I spent a chapter in my recent book talking about the gallimaufry of meanings for priors. And um, until they settled that, I don't think Bayesians really have a firm foundation because, of course, in addition to subjective and non-subjective, there's uses of frequencies in priors and empirical Bayes, and all of that has never been clarified. Do you think it is clarifiable, or do you think that this problem of selecting a prior or the degree to which you're going to believe something before you do the experiment, or your own interpretation of that, of, you know, subjectivity in this sense, is that a solvable problem, or is it just something that we have to live with, that ambiguity or that lack of a you know, of a rigorous, rational, consistent way to come up with that? Well, it may be solvable if they would at least admit, like there are subjectivists, I guess, Dennis Lindley, who are clearly subjectivists and actually believe in elicitation of scientists' subjective beliefs. Other Bayesians have found that the whole idea of elicitation doesn't work, that by the time you try to explain to the scientists the key aspects of the model or of the method, you need a new model, and that virtually never they find do scientists even overlap with their beliefs. So I do think, though, that they could be consistent, and I wish they would be, but in fact, every account is a hodgepodge of completely different things. Trying to capture your degree of belief is very different from coming up with a data-dependent prior that doesn't depend on beliefs. And so this is problematic. But I also think the very idea that what we want when we're trying to find something out is to update beliefs is a mistake. Or at least I'm prepared to say that there are different contexts. There are contexts where we're trying to find things out. That's the testing context, learning where it's really important to you to find out what is the case. And there are other contexts where it's proper to just be making your case and you can group together data that support your view. So I'm prepared to say that my account allows for both, but when we are interested in finding things out, what we really want is to split off a piece of the problem Okay, and not drag in everything we, we thought we believed before quite deliberately to ask a probative question, starting with, let's say, is this a real effect or due to background noise? And subsequent pieces follow. So I see uh, this learning as a piecemeal one and that we should be talking about probative learning tools, tools to probe out errors as opposed to updating beliefs. So tools to probe errors as opposed to updating beliefs, that that fits with that idea of what we're doing is, you know, is testing and severe testing. And I want you to talk a little bit about the getting back to the kind of Popperian idea there of, you know, we can do falsification, but it, confirmation is harder. You talk about how we are able to confirm things if we can demonstrate that it has been subjected to a severe test. What does that look like? 
this is what learning is always about and just in day-to-day life. In fact, I think people should look more in as, as to how they learn in day-to-day life because they'll find that they don't go around assigning probabilities to things or they do want to know about the reliability of methods. So take, for example, I'm uh, very weight conscious and I want to uh, know if I gained weight between the time I left for some trip and uh, after. And if I do have a set of well-calibrated scales and they all indicate to me I gained at least four or five pounds and I check the scale, I check the properties, I check, for example, that it correctly gets the weight of an object with known weight, like my book, uh, Error and the Growth of Experimental Knowledge Weighs Exactly One Pound. Then I put these pieces together and I argue I gained at least four pounds because if I hadn't, at least one of these scales would have revealed it. It can't be that all these scales are tricking me just when I don't know the weight of an object, but they work perfectly reliably with objects of known weight. So I infer with severity that I've gained at least four pounds. And notice I've used the properties of the tools. I've used the properties of the tools in order to infer what I have learned in this particular case. I'm not saying this is a good tool in the long run. It won't lead me into errors too often. That's this performance idea. I'm actually using knowledge of the capabilities of the tools, possibly several scales together, to infer something about my weight. I claim we do the same thing with statistics in learning about parameters in models and theories. You mentioned a little bit earlier uh, replication, which is certainly a a key part of the scientific endeavor. And there's been the so-called replication crisis where there have been a number of experiments, by and large in psychology, some of them in behavioral economics, that were put out there and got wide dissemination. And then when it was time to try to see if they were real, uh, they didn't replicate. How does your own model of error, uh, severe testing, fit in with that and maybe provide some kind of a solution to the replication crisis? The main thing is to see what the central problem is with replication. And the central problem is, again, that we have high-powered methods that make it so easy to come up with results that look impressive, they might give you small p-values, okay? Could you define that for people? Sorry, uh, what, what is a p-value? Okay, the p-value is the probability of getting even a more extreme result than you got under the assumption that there is no genuine effect. So the p-value is part of a test. And the first thing that we're testing is whether any differences we've observed are just due to background noise as opposed to being genuine. So it's just a limited piecemeal question. And pretty clearly, if there's a high probability of getting an even more impressive looking result, even if it is just background alone, then you don't have evidence for ruling out that background alone explanation. Just the first thing that we want before being able to infer that we have a genuine effect is ruling out 
the possibility that it's just noise in the data. You see, in statistics, of course, um, we use statistics because of variability. If you didn't have variability, you could do deterministic tests, right? Um, but we know there are uh, natural variability, let's say, in the number of days until you come out of the hospital from COVID or something like that. And we want to be able to distinguish this treatment, let's say, from the ordinary variability. So back to the replication that it may be easy to find um, results that look impressive and that give you small enough p-values to say, I guess it's not background alone, that it's incompatible with background alone, but that for various reasons, when somebody else tries to check and see if they get the same result, they don't. The whole replication crisis is that other people are trying to replicate your small p-value, but with more rigorous tests and with pre-registered hypothesis aren't able to bring it about. And the irony of this uh, is that critics of the use of p-values often say that the replication crisis shows that it's too easy to obtain small p-values. But the entire crisis is how difficult it is to get small p-values replicated when another group tries to bring it about, but with a tighter experiment that doesn't allow all the wiggle room and flexibility of the original. So what this means is the problem isn't p-values, but these selection effects, ignoring outcomes that you don't like cherry picking, outcome switching, and so on. So the central thing is what that tells you is that your statistical account had better be able to pick up on things like cherry picking, p-hacking, outcome switching. And most of the accounts do not. And so my work on the replication crisis is largely to show that they just scream out that we need accounts that can pick up on the consequences of the cherry picking and the bias selection effect. And the way this account of mine picks up on them is by showing how they alter the capabilities of tests to distinguish whether you have a real effect or not. If you have an account that doesn't pick up on that, and uh, then you're, you're just going to allow more flexibility. And of course, it's not just the method, the priors also can be cherry-picked, right? And I already mentioned determined post-data. And so we have more and more flexibility that um, leads to impressive-looking effects that don't replicate. When thinking about this myself, one of the things I considered, and in fact considered strongly enough that it made it one of the manifestos on my blog, was that with any test that you do, uh, any thing where you're you know trying to show an effect, you should also follow that exact same procedure that you followed to come up with that result on noise, on noise drawn, on noise that 
replicates the kind of noise you expect to find in your experiment if you're wrong and it's nothing but noise. So you do a Monte Carlo experiment that follows that same steps. And in following the same steps, it follows not just the specific model that you came up with at the end with the set of parameters that you had at the end, but that you do it the whole way through following your process. So you start with that noise as your data. And then if you made a decision about which variables to exclude, you do that same thing with the noise. So you retrace your steps on noise, including the steps that I think Gelman calls the forking path steps, where you, you know, you prune or you make decisions about what to do with your data. And then if that kind of meta procedure allows you to still come to a conclusion that there's an effect, even though you started with noise, then you need to be a little bit more circumspect about your, from your framework, the severity of the testing that you just applied to the problem at hand. Well, there's an important distinction between replication and reproducibility, um, replicability, reproducibility, even though they're used interchangeably. It sounds a a bit like you were talking about reproducibility, where you can uh, insist that somebody at least be able to reproduce the data using the exact same method. Whereas with the replication, we are changing the methods. We've got new subjects and um, we might even slightly change how we try to uh, trigger the result, but it's still supposed to be testing the same claim. That's right. These are two slightly different tests. So the replication test is you have these parameters that you've now kind of solidified that form your, your paper, and your paper argues that if you do this exact thing and you use this exact mathematical model, you're going to get a result like this. In the replication instance, what you're doing is you're fixing the procedure to that exact specification, and then you're going through and you're doing a brand new experiment with new subjects and determining whether the experiment replicates. Correct? So that's replication. And then What I was suggesting was a step even before that, where along the way, as an experimenter, you've made a certain amount of decisions, and those decisions have perhaps increased the probability that you're going to get a a false positive, a result that looks like a true result, even though it isn't. So maybe what you should do is start with a bunch of noise, data that you know has no intrinsic pattern or is no more likely to have one than, you know, than random data is generally. And then you're going to go through your procedure of picking variables and trimming and creating your model. This may come up with a different model. It may come up with a different set of parameters. But if following that same general procedure that you followed, you're able on noise alone to come up with a model that has a low p-value, then maybe there was something wrong with your procedure at the more meta level. Does that make sense? Sure, that you show that your procedure has so much flexibility that you're always going to be able to come up with possibly your pet theory being supported, or in other cases, some real effect, even though it's false. Yes, that would be tantamount to eliciting the reliability or the error properties, as I would call them, of your method. And as much as replication cries out for being able to characterize the error 
probing properties of your method, the leading accounts that are being put forward as alternatives to the error statistical accounts, uh, such as significance testing, actually don't characterize their methods that way. They think it's irrelevant to look at the error probabilities associated with the method. So one of the possible solutions to the replication crisis is more replication with procedures fixed in advance and stated. So you limit the number of shenanigans, let's just say, that you have along the way. The other approach, which I'm inclined to see as more and more the way forward, is that we essentially give up on trying to describe causation, or we decide that we've plucked all the low-hanging fruit there is to pluck in terms of causation, and we just go with black box models, and we judge a model simply on its ability to make predictions. So good models are models that make good predictions, and you know to incorporate some of your thinking in there, they're models that make predictions that we wouldn't have otherwise made. So if I have a, a, a so-called black box model and it makes a prediction that the earth will not explode tomorrow, well, that, that's not a particularly interesting prediction. But we evaluate the models based on what is the, the novelty of the prediction and how well has it done that. And then we don't so much worry about what's going on under the hood of that theory. Though I know from what we discussed a little bit before this interview that you're hesitant perhaps to give up on causation or think that people are generally. It's not that I'm hesitant to give up on causation. I think that if you don't try to find out the causal mechanisms going on, you're not going to find out how to change anything. What we really want is to be able to impinge on reality and make things come out different. And unless you know something about the causal nexus, you're not going to ever learn that. So there are times that we don't particularly care and um, about the, the causal underpinnings. And we say, well, whatever for whatever reason, Whenever I show a pink button, you know, they press on it more often when it's a than when it's a red button, just to take a crude example. Or that I can predict pretty well what books you're going to buy in the future from Amazon, given what you had uh, purchased. And, and I don't really care why. And there are contexts where that's um, sufficient. But in science, when we talk about scientific theories, where we're trying to build a greater understanding of phenomena in the world and change things, okay, then we really do need to understand the causal mechanisms involved. Back to your initial question, I think it would be a mistake to suppose that we're going to get around problems in scientific inference by steering clear of causation. I find myself more and more drawn over time to relaxing the requirements of causation and even wondering if even in the case where we're trying to discover a mechanism, that correlation may sometimes be good enough and that to some extent we are all as humans, cargo cultists. Are you familiar with the concept of a, a cargo cult? Yeah, of course. 
Right. So for the listeners, I don't know to what extent this is a story that's real and was endemic of the era or just something that happened once. But the idea was that during World War II, there were supplies dropped on landing fields and there was a a tribe somewhere in the Pacific that decided that if they put up a, you know, a landing field in the middle of somewhere and that they put up maybe a little mock replica of an airplane, that cargo would just fall out of the sky and drop down on them. And from a causality point of view, they were very clearly wrong. Uh, From a correlation standpoint, they were certainly right that landing strips did correlate with things falling out of the sky, at least for a period of time. And, you know, that is kind of roundly mocked as the wrong way to do epistemology. But I think that as we get into ever more complex aspects of life and society and systems, that understanding that this one thing always seems to go with this other thing may get us as far as we need to go and maybe the closest to causation that we can ever get in a very noisy, complex, self-referential environment. Well, we know that if A is correlated with B, then B is correlated with A, but causality goes in one direction. So we know if we just go with correlations that we're going to get it wrong. (laughs) And we have confounding effects also all the time that are very um, uh, difficult to tease out. And um, so, again, I agree that there are contexts where the correlation is enough because we don't care exactly why you're buying that book again. But that would be a very poor way to do science in general. Shifting up just a bit here, you worked your professional life in the field of the philosophy of science and have interacted extensively with folks in the field of statistics. My own experience of it was that relative to other fields that I had contact with, that I took classes in, communicated with professors, and just generally kept an eye on that field and the discussions that were happening in that field, that statistics seems particularly combative as a as a field. Do you agree with that? Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? Well, it's interesting because there has been a a long history of disputes, psychological, uh, professional, personality uh, disagreements. I guess there are various reasons, and I wouldn't give a full sociological uh, explanation. I think that what's going on in statistics and questions about their foundations really does get to the basic foundation of how do humans learn about the world? And so there's always been great disagreement about that. how do we learn about the world when there's limited data and uncertain information. So we get into this problem of induction that we mentioned and um, fundamental uh, disagreements about how to do that. With statistics, it actually goes sort of in two directions because philosophers look to statistics very often to get help with their own problems of evidence and inference and induction. And I also have always looked to it that way. In the other direction, we philosophers, one of our central jobs is to try to clarify the logical and conceptual problems of scientists, especially in fields dealing with reasoning. And so we're interested in using our tools to help with these debates as they arise um, in statistics. 
Although, um, by and large, you could say, well, statistics, like most sciences, doesn't need philosophy. But there are certain circumstances where I think uh, it, it does, especially when you have basic principles being challenged or new methods being proposed, such as methods that might suggest all we need is correlation rather than causation. That really suggests bringing in the philosophers. Uh, and also some popular memes that we hear in statistics, like all models are false, everything is equally subjective and objective, problems with p-values exaggerate evidence, and so on. Instead of taking it as given, I think that looking at the philosophy um, helps the practitioners to be better sort of applied philosophers of science. Only by looking at the, um, the actual philosophies associated with these concepts can you get around some of the combativeness. I mean, there are particular reasons for the combat, you know, between Fisher and Naaman Pearson and the Bayesians. Um, but in general, I think it's uh, the fact that these get at fundamental philosophical issues that haven't been resolved. And I'm not sure why, in some cases, uh, it's been as heated as it is. But because it is, I had to try to develop a technique uh, in my book to make it approachable, hopefully, <laughs> for people on all sides. And starting with this very simple idea that you don't have evidence for a claim if nothing has been done to find that claim false or flawed, something we can all agree on, okay? And we only have evidence for a claim if it's been subjected to and passes a test that has at least some probability of finding it false. Well, what happens to start that principle that we can all agree to? What happens if you find that some of your favorite methods violate even that minimal principle? I felt that was going to be the most um, successful, productive way to bring people into trying out not only this new philosophy, but having a tool to critically appraise. I was hoping that using this fundamental principle, people could come to critically evaluate different approaches because it's very surprising that some of the reforms being put forward actually violate this minimal principle of evidence. That is, in advocating methods that actually make it easier rather than more difficult to come up with spurious results that increase the flexibility rather than being more stringent. Um, I mean, there are many reforms that are in the direction of making things more stringent, like pre-registration and replication tests, but others are actually moving in the direction of accounts that are more flexible. And I wanted to get people to get beyond these debates that nobody wants to. I mean, the debates between frequentism and Bayesian have been so contentious that everybody wants to believe we're past them. We don't even want to mention them. But in fact, they really simmer below the surface in today's discussions. And we really do need to look at them and look at them from the perspective, though, not of the 100-year-old problems, but today's problems, such as of replication. 
So you've now been at this project of yours for a, a while, many years, many decades, as I believe, and pushing for this particular view of evidence and how we should do science in effect. How do you feel like the project is going to kind of reform things in that direction? Well, the interesting thing is that by and large, my project has been in using statistical ideas for philosophy, one of the two directions that I mentioned a minute ago, as opposed to trying to look at practice and solving uh, the particular um, problems and debates. So for example, Era and the Growth of Experimental Knowledge was almost entirely to try to use these ideas from statistics to come up with this notion of what we're trying to learn, we're trying to learn about experimental knowledge, we're trying to attain experimental knowledge, knowledge of what would be expected in subsequent experiments. And this just have consequences for statistics. But I found that the debates and statistics were more or less uh, moving away from this combative disputes that we just alluded to around I don't know, 2010, maybe, it was thought we have a unification between Bayes, non-Bayes, using this appeal to default or reference priors and so on. Then I think the, the replication crisis, together with the whole big data thing, um, resulted in the whole field sort of exploding again. And so my own work only started to really look in the that direction, what can we say about the debates that practitioners who use statistics are really grappling with using these philosophical ideas? And I actually think that these debates, even though they are philosophical, are being driven by the practitioners, by the whole introduction of uh, big data, by the whole need to deal with problems of replication, and not by philosophers. Philosophers are kind of out of it. I'm trying to bring them in. I had a summer seminar in 2019 where I brought in 15 faculty from different philosophy faculty, mostly. We also had computer scientists and psychologists to try to combine understanding some of the statistics with philosophical problems mixed in, because there's no way to really make progress in this work without knowing both, and uh, the history and philosophy of statistics and also some of the formal concepts. So my colleague, Aristanus, and I got together and funded this project. So I see myself now as much more involved with statisticians and practitioners. So this forum that I'm doing, for example, is almost entirely with statisticians and practitioners, although uh, we did the seminar last just this past summer that I was supposed to give at the London School of Economics, but because of the pandemic, you know, couldn't get there. Well, we did it on Zoom and it was really very successful. So I'm trying to get philosophers more involved, but this new project of mine over the past 10 years is rather different from previous ones, although obviously there's overlap. And so how is it doing, you're asking? Um, uh, I, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. Uh, we recently had a debate, me and Trafamel and Jim Berger, 
sponsored by uh, National Institute of St Statistical Science. So clearly these are very controversial issues still, but I hope that people are starting to realize, not, not just from my work, obviously, but also from today's research on COVID and the importance of clinical trials and trials that have error control, I hope that they will see the importance of these tools. I do as well. I, I certainly hope that people begin to adopt more of this way of thinking. I think that there's a lot to recommend it. Where you have a, a fairly popular blog, can you let listeners know about that? Do I have a popular blog? You do. Tell the listeners about that. Yeah, you know, I haven't been spending as much time on it these days. Uh, ever since the book, I actually was trying out ideas as I was writing the book. I would try them out on the blog, and that was very uh, successful because um, the comments that I got from people saved me from uh, a lot of blunders, and I was able to work out the best ways to explain these things. I was really trying to do something in a brand new way that would not just make it accessible, but would make it approachable for people from different backgrounds, uh, from different philosophies who are reluctant to even read this stuff because they think it's just going to be these frequentists and it's going to be this strong view being put forward. And um, so, I, I did that, uh, I tried that out a lot with people online in terms of what seemed to work. And now I don't spend as much time on it, but I have a couple of blogs and one just focuses on the forum, the Philstat forum, and the other one, my regular blog, aristatistics.com, currently has <laughs> Stephen Sen's guest posts. And um, I hope to spend more time on it. But, you know, I think people have tended to move to Twitter a lot. Yeah, unfortunately, yes, in, in my view. There were some great blogs, and I think I, I contributed occasionally a, a nice post uh, that that uh, was interesting in that field, and now the debate is much more on Twitter and, in my view, much the worse off for it. Well, it is very alluring, I have to admit. I started using it <laughs> myself, as you probably know you know, just in terms of the quickness. But during the time of writing my book, the comments, you know, I always tell people they ought to look at, even if they have a copy of my book, they ought to look at where I first discussed this on the blog because I might get 70 or 80 comments that were really, really very illuminating. And uh, I go back to them because then I remember, you know, what the issues were because people from all different fields and with different perspectives would come on. I, I would second that, that uh, article I mentioned, people can go on and look at it where I analyze the global warming data in and among the comments that were very frustrating. There were also some very interesting ones about, you know, was was I seeing regression to the mean? Was it some things that really made me think, did I do this analysis correctly? But uh, I don't see that too much on Twitter. It'd be nice if there was more of it. I don't know, maybe we need some sort of a, a new way forward in terms of that, but who knows? Yeah, it's 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 terrible. I mean, I, I'm very reluctant to get into debates that I have worked out in detail on my book on Twitter. So I just try to use links to the book. I think that it's really very detrimental now that we have a 
on places like Twitter and even in official uh, journals, a lot of back and forth about these methods that are based on very bad arguments, that are based on sort of straw person arguments, like um, these tools can be used very badly, therefore let's ban them, you know. Uh, as Trafamau was, you know, saying the other day, and a lot of people say that. And when you hear people in power and in important positions arguing that way, I think it only increases the whole uh, perverse incentives that we're all aware of these days to use questionable methods. And these important people are using questionable arguments. I use questionable methods. The whole field has a uh, kind of lost some of the scientific reputation recently. And as a philosopher um, of science, that really concerns me. Deborah, thanks for coming on The Filter. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. I hope to hear more about your work. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.